0: Non nobis domine, non nobis, sed nomini tuo da gloriam. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name, the glory. Welcome to No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The confusion stops here. And as promised last week when we looked at the Crusades, today we are going to talk about another one of the most controversial subjects of Catholic history— namely the Knights Templar. Who were the Templars? Were they brave Christian heroes and exemplars of the Catholic faith or secret heretics possessed of hidden occult knowledge? Did they cease to exist in the 14th century, or do they survive today as secret societies like the Freemasons? <laughs> we'll find out the true history of the poor Knights of Christ later in today's program. But first, I want to begin with an example, yet another example, of Catholic kryptonite. And if you are living life as a no-nonsense Catholic, then you are bound to encounter today's Catholic kryptonite. Uh, And Catholic kryptonite, as you will recall, is my term for objections to the Catholic faith that catch the average Catholic off guard and without a ready response. In fact, true examples of Catholic kryptonite are so commonplace, so deeply ingrained in the cultural consciousness, that many people assume that there is no defense. And Catholic kryptonite, by the way, is not only wielded by Bible-coding fundamentalists, but by non-believers as well, like today's example. If a relationship with Christ is such a life-changing experience, if the sacraments really are direct channels of grace, in other words, if Catholicism is true, then why are there so many bad Catholics? You know, it's common knowledge that something like, uh, I mean, something more than 75% of Catholics virtually never darken the door of a church. And more than a few prominent Catholics who are Catholic in name only lead anything but edifying lives. So how do you answer that? Well, first of all, I think it's well to remember that Christ chose men and not angels to belong to and to administrate his church. Now, that statement might seem rather elementary or rather are obvious. But if you think about it, then you won't have too much trouble understanding, say, clergy, bishops and priests who fail to live up to their high calling. Or Catholic lay people who do not measure up to the standards required uh, to be a good Catholic. And the reason being that they are, are human. And human beings commit sins. Even among the 12 apostles who were, remember, handpicked by our Lord himself. You have Judas who betrayed him and handed him over to his enemies to be crucified. You have Peter who denied even knowing him three times. And finally, with an oath, I swear I've never, you know, met, never met the man. And in fact, all of the apostles, with the exception of John, abandoned our Lord when he needed them most. But the point is, and here's the crux of it it is not fair to judge the church by those who fail to live up up to the standards of the church. You can only fairly judge the church or really any institution by those who live according to the rules and uh, expectations of that institution or organization. Yes, we have bad Catholics. In fact, I've trotted out uh, some of the the, the worst possible, the worst imaginable examples. Uh, Adolf Hitler was a Catholic before he became a pagan and a a persecutor of the church. Uh, Goebbels was educated in the household of a priest. Joseph Stalin, well, he wasn't Catholic, but once upon a time, he was a seminarian preparing for the priesthood in the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, Benito Mussolini was born and baptized a Catholic. Uh, Fidel Castro of Cuba, the, the communist oppressor of that once predominantly Catholic country, was educated in Jesuit schools. So, I mean, these are some of the great uh, uh, cardboard villains of the 20th century. Uh, and it's not difficult. It's easy to single out faithless and fallen away Catholics. But, but that is precisely what they are. They're faithless. And you cannot judge the faith by those who reject it. You can't judge Catholicism by ex-Catholics because that's nonsense. Even Catholics in name only, Catholics who, who, who you know claim membership in the church, but do not follow its precepts. And consider, on the other hand, the countless souls who have given themselves wholeheartedly to Christ and his church. Now, the Catholic faith is to be judged by the lives uh, of those who are faithful members of the body of Christ. Those who, uh, you know, uh, what, what did our Lord say, who love God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves those who keep his commandments, those who love him, not those who reject the commandments. In fact, I, it shouldn't come as any surprise that there are, in fact, questionable Catholics. As you remember, our Lord himself in the sacred scriptures uh, speaking about his kingdom, which is the church, told the parable of the of the uh, wheat and the tares. He said that there would be good and bad li- living side by side in the church when he compared Catholics to weeds and wheat that grow together in the same field. And it won't be until the harvest that the wheat will be gathered into barns and the weeds bundled up to be burned. Now there is uh, a difference between someone who's Catholic in name only, right? So any number of liberal politicians immediately spring to mind. There's a difference between them and those who are living wholeheartedly Catholic lives. Bishop Sheen pointed it out. He used to say, you either behave as you believe or you will wind up believing as you behave. You know, and that's, that's why you can see a, a Catholic, well, somebody like Nancy Pelosi, who apparently doesn't believe that abortion is against the teaching of the church. Right? Uh, or, or, I mean, she's either so, so deluded, so mired in sin that she can't see it, or she's just willfully obtuse. Now, what makes a Catholic? Well, a person enters the church, becomes Catholic, becomes a body of Christ through baptism. But that fact alone doesn't make him either a good Catholic or a bad one. Baptism washes away the guilt of original sin. It gives us a share in the divine life, but the effects of sin still remain. That's why the good Lord instituted the segment of confession, to forgive sins committed after baptism. Because it's not just church membership, it's the way a person lives their life that makes them good, bad, or indifferent uh, as a Catholic. You know, when you're physically born, you become a member of a family. But that doesn't force you to be the kind of child your parents were hoping for. <laughs> that's something that's determined by your own free will. Likewise, being born again by water and the Holy Spirit doesn't compel us to be the kind of children that, that um, God is our father and the church as our mother would have us to be. That requires a lifetime of cooperating with God's grace. Now, the modern world often uh, challenges us with remarks like, um, oh, your church had its chance and lost it. And I would say, on the contrary, the church had its chance and took it. And the world is much better off because of it. And anyone who fails to realize just how enormous an influence the church has had on civilization, an enormous influence for good, just doesn't know their history. They don't understand what the faith has accomplished because they don't know what the world was like when Christianity first came onto the scene. And so they do not comprehend the, just the amazing work of regeneration and renewal that the church did and, and continues to do. And in order to realize this, our critics would have to have more knowledge of history than they have now, um, or frankly are likely to take the trouble to acquire. So, so what to do? Well, when the question... The question arises: How is it that there are those outside the church, even outside any religious faiths—atheists, agnostics—who seem to live better lives than Catholics do? Well, then you must ask: How do you make that judgment? By what standard? The fact is, uh, such persons live in a society that is still permeated with Christian ideals, and and those people are in fact profoundly influenced, whether they know it or not. Not by the moral standard and code of ethics inspired by the teachings of Christ and his church. In other words, every trait that commends them to others is traceable to the standards of conduct taught by the religion of Jesus Christ. In other words, they are considered good citizens or just good people, not because of their atheism or agnosticism, but in spite of it. They are considered good because they exemplify Christian qualities. Qualities. That is to say, admirable qualities that their own belief or lack thereof could never have produced in the first place. You know, it reminds me of uh, something the German poet Heinrich Heine once said when comparing uh, medievals to the moderns. He said, People in, in the olden times had convictions, whereas we moderns have only opinions. And it takes more than a mere opinion to erect a Gothic cathedral. See, the Catholic Church is not a failure, as so many of its enemies would have you believe. In fact, it seems to me that the ones who bring up the charge so persistently and so loudly are simply advertising the fact uh, that the Catholic Church is not a failure. Because if it were, they would never pay so much attention to it. And that is no nonsense. Okay, uh, that's today's Catholic crypt and I. Um, Perhaps later in the show, if we have time, going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance, which is also, those four sins are going to play a part in the next segment, which is uh, the truth about the Templars. Who were the Knights Templar, and what is their real history? And you will find out when we return. Tomorrow also uh, is the premiere of... Of Understanding Divine Mercy with Father Chris Alar, And on our first official program, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus and divine mercy. And we'll be welcoming our first two guests, Maria Romagnano, founder of the healthcare of the Apostolate, Healthcare Workers for Divine Mercy, and also Catholic author and speaker Teresa Tomio. That's Understanding Divine Mercy tomorrow at noon Pacific here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. For now, uh, we will be right back with more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this.
1: Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother?
2: Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him, I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to the Terry and Jesse show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a week. Wow. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
1: Daniel, what a testimony. And I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you.
2: You're welcome. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Assetta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Assetta. Give Dr. Assetta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. 661-695-6617.
1: This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support.
0: Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. As promised, we're going to be talking about, well, the truth about the Templars, the Knights Templar, who they were, what they were about. Uh, Just to begin with, I'd like to do a quick review, just a little overview of of the events leading up to the first crusade. We know that uh, Muhammad is the prophet of Islam, who preached and promoted his new religion in the Holy Land, which is to say, where our Lord Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected. And at first, historians tell us Christians and Muslims peacefully coexisted uh, in this sense. From the very beginning, Islam was spread by the sword, and pagan peoples were given the choice to either convert to Islam or die. Jews and Christians, however, were considered, uh, they were the so-called people of the book, that being the Holy Bible. And according to Muhammad, they should be allowed to retain their religion, although they too had to submit to Islamic rule and live by Islamic law or die. See, there seems like it was always an or die proposition with the Muslims back in those days. Anyway, after running the Holy Land, which remember had been Christian for centuries before such a thing as Islam, ever entered into the head of Muhammad. After overrunning the, the, the entirety of the Holy Land, Islamic warlords pushed their way into Christian Europe, conquering Spain, uh, parts of the Balkans. By the year 732, Islamic forces were finally turned back uh, at the Battle of Tours in France. And this is within, you know, this is a century, within a single century from the time of Muhammad himself. And, you know, centuries of conquest follows. Uh, military incursions caused uh, fear and mistrust to spread across Christendom, East and West. And of course, Christian pilgrims uh, were used to travel to the Holy Land out of a sense of spiritual obligation. But by the late 11th century, violence between pilgrims and Muslims had become quite commonplace, so much so that it was no longer safe for Christians to travel to the Holy Land. So demands for protection increased. And meanwhile, from the 1170s to the 1190s, virtually all of Asia Minor that's modern-day Turkey, fell to Islam. And finally, Constantinople itself, the, the greatest Christian city in the world, was threatened by invasion. So at the request of the Byzantine emperor uh, for Catholics to come from the West to come to the relief of their brother Christians in the East, Pope Urban called the First Crusade back in November of 1095. Um, and I said 1170s, 1190s, I, I should... I. Man, I should have said ten. Uh, anyway, what were the goals of the First Crusade? Well, to retake Jerusalem for Christ, to make the route from Europe to the Holy Land safe again for Christian pilgrims. The Crusaders vowed to worship at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the very heart of Jerusalem. That was their vow, which of course meant, uh, of course, meant laying siege to the Holy City. And the First Crusade was really the only successful one militarily, and and Jerusalem was retaken for Christ. Uh, in the year 1099. Now directly following the liberation of Jerusalem, the vast majority of Christian Knights having fulfilled their crusading vow, returned home to Christendom. And they left behind them only a small force to safeguard the newly formed crusader kingdom. But one Knight was inspired to remain in the Holy land with a handful of companions to form the first ever religious order with a military character. His name was Hugh de Payens, and his order was the Poor Knights of Christ. With the approbation of the Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Poor Knights established their first headquarters in a wing of the castle of King Baldwin II, right on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so they became known as the Poor Knights of Christ of the Temple of Solomon, or the Knights Templar for short. Now, their original insignia, the original Templar seal was not the famous eight-pointed red cross, but an image of two knights riding on a single horse which was meant to symbolize the poverty of the order now to be officially recognized the new order sought the blessing of Pope Innocent II and Eudipion's cousin was invited to argue their case for them providentially this relative of the first master of the temple was perhaps the most influential man in Christendom saint bernard of clairvaux he promoted the knights templar pled their cause at the council of Troyes. he wrote a popular treatise in praise of the new knighthood and was chosen to compose their rule of life based on the spirituality of his own cistercian order by the way he essentially single-handedly invented um, chivalry through those actions now consequently the knights of the temple um, following the Cistercians spirituality wore the white Cistercian habit over their armor. And for years, the Templars protected Christian pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem. But it was impossible to cover every inch of the way. And so pilgrims were still being attacked by bandits who would take everything from them, leaving them, if alive, stranded and destitute. So to alleviate that situation, the Templars developed another way, a new way to protect the pilgrims, or at least to protect their assets. Templar houses in Europe would accept money from pilgrims and then issue them a note. That note then could be redeemed for gold or silver in the Holy Land. In other words, they issued the first checking accounts and laid the foundation for international banking. Now the Templars, of course, the order was immensely popular. And, and it became quite wealthy by means of the many donations that came in from every corner of Christendom. Donations of land and livestock as well as gold and silver. And soon the, the Templars owned property all across Europe where they raised crops and livestock, <clears throat> not just sheep and, and cattle but horses and so forth to support their efforts in the Holy Land. And they used their newfound wealth to become bankers and to purchase a fleet of ships which were initially used uh, for transport, to transport men and arms and horses to the Holy Land, but then later were used for trade. Now, at this same time, there were rumors of another source of wealth, rumors that the Templars spent their first years digging a system of tunnels under the Temple Mount, allegedly seeking holy relics and the fabled Treasure of Solomon. Tales soon circulated that they had discovered the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail, or the true cross, or the holy lance, that they had uncovered ancient scrolls containing the hidden magical wisdom of Solomon, uh, even the very name of God, and of course, uh, a a mountain of treasure. Sadly, uh, apart from the tunnels, there's no evidence that the Templars ever found any of those things, or even that they were looking for them in the first place. However, regardless of donations of land and money, the Templars did not enrich themselves personally. Remember, they were uh, essentially monks and followed the Cistercian-style rule written for them by St. Bernard. They followed the evangelical councils. They took vows of chastity and poverty and obedience. They had no personal possessions beyond what was supplied them by their order. And in opposition to the knightly fashion of the times, they kept their hair cut short and grew their beards long. You know, even their arms, while of excellent quality and well-maintained, was to be devoid of any and all ornament. So who were these knights? And what were the requirements to be a Templar knight? Well, firstly, a candidate had to be of legitimate noble birth and had to already be a knight. He must have already been knighted. And they could not be married. So you had a number of knights who were either, they were older men, they were experienced, some of them were, were widowers, some of them um, made arrangements where their wives, you know, maybe they had grown children and their wives would enter a religious order for women and they would enter into the order of the Templars, which, by the way, that was not that unusual in the Middle Ages, that people would come to a certain place after they'd, after childbearing age. And it was kind of it was like retirement. You know, you give the kids the farm and then mom and dad go and enter into these religious orders to spend out their lives in prayer and and preparation for a, a whole death. Anyway, uh, the knights couldn't be married, you know, they had had to follow the strict rules of the order, and according to St. Bernard, they were required to be like lambs in the cloister and lions on the battlefield. Now, because of all these restrictions, there were never more than a few hundred Templar knights at any one time. In life and in battle, the Templar knights were supported by an army of foot soldiers called sergeants, kind of a class of servant soldier that was common. During the time, and even amongst the the, the knights and the sergeants, um, it's estimated that less than ten percent of the Templars ever saw battle. The great majority of the Templars did not reside in the Holy Land. They were they were lay brothers who served in supporting roles across Europe, managing the land, raising the crops, raising the the livestock, and so forth. And what about those who did see battle? You know, uh, in the Holy Land during the Crusades and the time of the Crusader Kingdom, the Templars were the first line of defense. And along with the Knights Hospitallers, the Knights of St. John of the Hospital, they were the only standing army in the Christian world, at least the Western Christian world. And the heavy charge on horseback of the Templar Knights uh, was just a devastating military tactic, and it was used to break enemy lines before the main attack, You know, even the lines of a much superior force. And that was made possible because the Templars and their horses were fearless and well-trained and heavily armored. You know, in the 1170s, the great Muslim warlord Saladin got within 45 miles of Jerusalem with a force of some 26,000 mounted warriors. And he was met by Baldwin IV, the king of Jerusalem. See, rather than remaining in the holy city, Baldwin went out to meet this vastly superior force in open in battle. And I must say, Baldwin IV was something of a military genius, despite being the fact that he was only 24 years old, and that he suffered from leprosy. You know, Baldwin met Saladin's army at the head of 500 Templar knights and about 10,000 foot soldiers. But because of the Templars' tactics, the Muslims, 26,000 mounted warriors, completely routed. Saladin himself only escaped with his life by abandoning his horse and racing off into the desert on a camel In fact, that defeat was so stunning that Saladin was convinced that Allah was with Baldwin and determined never to face him in combat again. And over the years, no matter how superior a force Saladin commanded, if Baldwin was was in the battle, he retreated. Even when Baldwin's leprosy was so advanced that he had to be carried into battle on a stretcher. Now, another feature of the Templar Knights' success is that they were known to fight to the death. Part of their rule was a pledge to keep fighting until their standard was lowered. They had a flag called Beauson, Very simple, just a, just a square, and the top half was black, the bottom half was white. And as long as that flag was flying on the battlefield, they had to stay and fight no matter what. Also, it was well known that if the Templar Knights were captured, they would not be ransomed. You know, according to Saladin's own biographer, after the bitter Crusader defeat at the Horns of Hatton in 1187, the Muslim warlord, and I'm quoting, watched with joy as 200 captured Templar knights were beheaded one by one rather than deny Christ. So, what happened to the Knights Templar? Where are they today? Uh, what happened to their original purpose? And why were they persecuted? Going to have the answers to all those questions and lots more when we come back. With more No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
3: Hi, this is Jesse Romero from The Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet. But we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need covenant eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the imminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith.
1: This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us. By going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products A portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life 877-543-3871 because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support.
0: Welcome back, No-Nonsense Catholics, talking about the truth about the Templars, and we can see that the Templars were an extremely popular, well-funded, and well-organized religious order spread all over Europe, and you know, uh, doing their apostolate in the Holy Land, defending the Christian pilgrims there. So what happened? What happened to the Templars, and where are they today? Um, Well, for one thing, the Templars actually lost their original purpose simply because the Muslims recaptured the Holy Land. You know, as long as the Muslim sultans had been fighting amongst themselves, the Crusader Kingdom was relatively safe. I mean, even though it was never more than 10% Christian, you know, fully 90% of the subjects uh, in the Crusader Kingdom were themselves Muslim. But as long as the the other sultans couldn't get their act together, uh, things went okay. But once they were united, under the great warlord Saladin. Now, at that point, it became just a matter of time before the Holy Land fell under complete Muslim domination once again. So what is there for the Templars to do? You know, if they're not defending Christians in the Holy Land, what's the point? Well, the answer is they became moneylenders, as well as bankers and merchants. And they lent money to powerful people, kings and princes. And such was their... Downfall. King Philip IV uh, of France was known as Philip the Fair, Uh, not because he was particularly good looking and certainly not because he was an equitable man. Uh, He was none of those things. He was also called the Iron King because of his uh, stubbornness, but uh, he was known as Philip the Fair simply because he had blonde hair. And he was King of France during the Hundred Years' War with England. And warfare, as you know, is expensive. And so he borrowed heavily both from the French Jews and from the Templars. But when time came to pay up, the unscrupulous prince uh, expelled the Jews from France and ruthlessly persecuted the Templars to avoid having to repay what he owed them. On Friday, October the 13th, 1307, Philip the Fair had scores of Templars arrested including Jacques de Molay, the last master of the temple. And yes, that's why Friday the 13th is considered unlucky, because of what happened to the Templars that day. And also I should say that Jacques de Molay was the last master of the temple. You see all over the Internet, um, even in some books, you see de Molay referred to as the grand master of the temple, but that's historically inaccurate. The Templars, it's in their rule that they have a master The term Grand Master is a Masonic title, and the Masons have no historical connection to the Knights Templar whatsoever, as we shall see. But Philip uh, accused the Templars of the four great sins from Scripture that cry out to heaven for vengeance. He accused them of idolatry and sodomy, defrauding the laborer of his wages and oppressing widows and orphans. And it might be interesting to note that these are the the very same charges that he brought against the Jewish moneylenders when he had them expelled from France. Templar leadership uh, was imprisoned for years and mercilessly tortured into making false confessions. Jacques de Molay, the master of the temple, was an old man. And under Philip he was flayed alive That is, he, he had the skin actually torn from his body from his thighs and from his midsection and um, he confessed to the, the things that he'd been accused of but you know ultimately de Molay and the officers of the temple publicly recanted their confessions and were put to death um, Jacques de Molay Geoffrey de Charnay and another of his lieutenants were burned at the stake on March the 14th 1314. And over that seven year period from 1307 to 1314, in all, some 54 Templars were executed by Philip the Fair. But something happened on the day of Jacques de Molay's execution that would become part of the Templar legend. As he was being burned alive, the last master of the temple called upon King Philip and Pope Clement V to appear before the throne of God's judgment before the year was out. Pope Clement died within the month, and Philip the following November. And then within about 14 years, all of King Philip's sons and grandsons were also dead, ending his royal line forever. Now, Pope Clement, for his part, uh, had cooperated in, uh, you know, the Philip's campaign against the Templars, for a number of reasons, no doubt. This is during the, the so-called Babylonian, captivity of the papacy where the popes resided in Avignon and were under a great deal of influence of the French crown. And uh, Pope Clement actually suppressed the Templar order in March of 1312. And he stated the reason that although there was not, in his opinion, there wasn't the sufficient reason to condemn the order. But for the common good, uh, because of the hatred of the order by the king of France, because of the scandal that had been brought about uh, by their trial and all those wild accusations, the order was officially suppressed. Templars were disbanded. The last master was executed in 1314. So the question is, what happened to the rest of the Templars? You know, Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code and in his Angels and Demons, would have you, you know, suggested that all the Templars all over Europe you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of them were all arrested on the same day, which is nonsense. But there were trials, there were accusations in other places. England is the only other place that I know of where where any of those charges stuck. And of course, England was on the other side of the Hundred Years' War and had also um, indebted themselves very deeply to the Templars. So they had uh, they had their reasons. Elsewhere in Europe, though, no, virtually no Templars were found guilty of anything. You know, the Pope himself... Uh, when he suppressed the Templars, suggested a merger with the Knights Hospitaller. And so that's what happened to the majority of the Templars. They simply exchanged their white uh, Templar habits for the black habit of the Knights of the hospital. Some just reentered into the world. You know, they went back into secular life. There were a, a few that reorganized into new knightly orders. In Portugal, for instance, the former Templars reorganized as the Knights of Christ and even retained their white habits and the Red Cross that they had worn as Templars. But the Knights of the Hospital absorbed the majority of the Templar Knights and also the Templar treasury, although, you know, minus what found its way into the royal coffers of France and England. So, in other words, there was also no secret stash for lost Templar treasure. You know, and and, and of course, you know, some people watch TV and and. You know, they're, they're maybe a, a little credulous, and, and they really think that the Templars, you know, became the secret society like the Masons, or that the Masons themselves are the descendants of the Templars, and that they took their fabulous treasure of Solomon to North America, you know, like in that movie National Treasure. But historically speaking, this is all, this is, you know, grade A nonsense. Um, so the question is, do Templars or orders of Templars exist today? Well, there are lots of self-styled orders of chivalry and secret society that call themselves Templars or claim some kind of descent from the Templars, either a, a, obviously a historical direct descent or perhaps a spiritual descent, right? In in the sense that they claim to uh, keep alive the Templar spirit. Some even claim to uh, have the Templar secret occult knowledge, you know, that was discovered under the Temple of Solomon or whatever. But in fact, no group of modern Templars has any direct connection to the original knights. And self-styled orders of chivalry and secret societies that claim to have direct historical uh, descent from the Templars consist exclusively of two groups, the deceivers and the deceived. The order did not survive in secret, and we know what actually happened to the former Templar knights. There simply isn't any mystery except what was cooked up centuries after the fact. you know. But, but couldn't the Templars, at least hypothetically, have continued to exist underground as a secret society? Well, the answer to that question is no. The Templars were a Catholic religious order answerable to the Pope. When Clement V suppressed the order, it ceased to exist. There's no mechanism in their rule of life uh, to continue the order or to even elect a new master after the de- death of Jacques de Molay. Or anything of the sort, and I will tell you right now that if you if you look at books about the Templars, the, the, the test of whether it's uh, a, a serious book or not is does it end with the suppression in 1312 and the death of Jacques de Molay and Geoffrey de Charny in 1314? Because if not, then whatever follows will be nonsense. Now, since most of the Templars became Knights Hospitaller, the next question is: Do they still exist, right, the Order of St John, the Knights of the Hospital, do they still exist? Yes, they do, although today they are known as the Knights of Malta, and they are no longer a military order, but um, they're still closely associated with the Catholic Church. they're recognized uh, as a non governmental organization by the United Nations, and they perform various humanitarian works. I'm uh, acquainted with some Knights of Malta in my own parish, and there is also and This is actually more surprising, I think, to some people. There is still one legitimate Templar organization that is recognized by the Catholic Church, the Christi Paupera Militia Ordo, or the Order of the Poor Knights of Christ. But again, they were constituted in 1979 by an Italian count who actually had or has an original Templar stronghold on his ancestral lands near Siena. They're an association of lay faithful, and they're dedicated to Templar spiritual and they live a modified version of the rule of life composed by St. Bernard for the original Templars, but adjusted for lay people living in the world. So they, they don't make any claim to direct descent from the original Templars, right? They're, they're quite satisfied to say our order began in the year of our Lord, 1979. Okay, the, the the real answer, I would suggest, to these specious claims of these various pseudo Templar groups, lies in how we regard the medieval Templars. You know, the secret societies of today would claim that the Templars were unjustly persecuted by the Church, and at the same time, claim that they possessed secret, hidden, occult knowledge. So, which is it? Were the Templars unjustly persecuted Catholics, or idolatrous heretics, and technically guilty as charged? In 2001, a surprise discovery from the Vatican Library changed everything— And I'll tell you about that and lots more when No Nonsense Catholic returns, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, after these messages. Stay with me. In Luke 7, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her because she has been shown great love. According to St. John of the Cross, Christians should always remember that the value of their good works is not based on number and excellence. Their value is based on the love for God that prompts them to do the works. May we always be motivated by true love for God and not worry so much about what we do, but why we do it.
1: Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother?
2: Hi. I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app and he kept putting me off until so one day I grabbed his phone and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to the Terry and Jesse show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
1: Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support.
0: Welcome back. Final segment here on No Nonsense Catholic. We just uh, said that there was a surprise discovery in the Vatican library in 2001 that changed modern perception of the Templars. And what happened is that uh, Barbara Frawley, who was a photographer that was working in the Vatican Secret Archives, discovered a document dating to August of 1308. It is referred to today as the Chinon Parchment, and it reveals that Pope Clement absolved the Templars of all heresies. That document had long been lost to history because it was misfiled back in the year 1628— which is a a century before the founding of the Freemasons, by the way. Uh, Another document shows that Pope Clement informed King Philip IV that he had absolved the Templars, all the Templars who had confessed to heresy, and that they were were to be restored to the sacraments of the Church. But when it came to the Templar leaders, King uh, Philip, the Iron King, ignored the Pope. Now, the Catholic Church today recognizes that the Templars were unjustly persecuted and that Pope Clement V did uh, what he could on their behalf. Today we know that the Knights Templar were not heretics, they were not idolaters, or you know, snidely whiplash persecutors of widows and orphans. They were loyal, faithful, and dedicated Catholic warriors. Their practice of chivalry and virtue and courage remains unmatched in this or any age. And so Christians everywhere, and Catholics in particular, should look upon these knights as some of the greatest Christian heroes who ever lived. And that's no nonsense. All right, finally today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the sins that cry to heaven for vengeance and COVID-19. How how do those things match up? Well, you know I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and in 25 years of evangelization and apologetics— I have often heard the warning that God is going to punish the Christian West in general, or the, the United States in particular, if we did not affect some specific change in our culture. God will surely punish the United States if the Supreme Court rules in favor of homosexual marriage, which it did. Uh, God's God going to punish the United States if Catholics continue to vote for pro-abortion candidates, which they do. Uh, God will punish us if we do not overturn the health and human services mandate, which the little scissors of the poor, are still in court over. You know, If we do or do not fill in the blank, God will punish the West or the United States. Now, as I've been saying for 25-plus years, I must respectfully disagree. God is not going to punish the United States. God is punishing the United States, and has been for some time. And what about COVID-19? Is that a punishment from God? Well, sure it is. I mean, at least in one sense. All disease, all human... Inf- infirmities, even death itself. All these evils are the result of original sin. You know, hold on to your hats, I have news for you. We live in a fallen world. But more importantly, the way things are going, I don't think it takes the gift of prophecy to see that our just comeuppance is going to be more and more severe. You know, just just compare recent history to salvation history. Look at the first chapter of uh, the Epistle to the Romans. St. Paul shows that the pagan philosophers knew about the existence of God through reason, through philosophy, but they would not glorify him or give him thanks. Instead, he said, they became vain in their reasoning and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of mortal man or birds or four-legged animals or snakes. He's talking about pagan idols. And and these pagan idols represented things like money and power and sex. And modern people, and and especially those who claim not to believe in God, still make and worship their own images and their own ideas uh, and money and power and sex rather than glorify the one God. And what's the consequence of such idolatry? Well, St. Paul says, therefore, God handed them over to impurity through the lust of their heart for the mutual degradation of their bodies. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and revered and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God handed them over to degrading passions. Females exchanged natural relationships for unnatural. The males did shameful things with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their perversity. You see, the fact that God allowed the Romans to fall into these deadly sins and the dreadful natural consequences that attend them, that was their punishment. And so it is with us. I mean, the difference between us and the ancient Romans being that they didn't have 2,000 years of Christian civilization to answer to, and we do. You know, in in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk rails at God, how long, O Lord? The politicians are corrupt, and the priests are unholy, and the people are ignorant. How long will you allow this to go on? And God said, well, I'll have the Babylonians destroy the Temple of Solomon, take the chosen people into captivity in a foreign land for a few centuries, and that ought to sort things out. And you know you might imagine that's not the answer that Habakkuk was looking for any more than we are. But the fact is, life uh, in those days, life in the days of COVID-19, it's a trial. But like all trials, it's also an opportunity. I think we tend to forget that suffering is good. It's good for the sinner and it's good for the just person because it provides an occasion of conversion for the sinner and for the just an opportunity for greater merit. You consider the situation in the formerly Christian West of today, The Bible says there's four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. Let's look at defrauding laborers of their due. That's obviously evil not to pay someone for their work. But what are we supposed to make of this economic shutdown in response just to the threat of contacting COVID-19? You know, in our day, even temporary unemployment can break the bank and your heart. But but how many people who are now out of work um, are not going to have a job to return to even when they are, are allowed to go back into the world? And at a time when just, just a couple of months ago, we were un, uh, enjoying an unprecedented economic recovery, record-breaking employment. You know, protecting our physical health is good. It's a good thing, but it's not the only thing. Oppressing widows and orphans. Anybody can see how gravely sinful it is to take advantage of the vulnerability of, of a widow or an orphan. Much easier in every way to abuse a boy or girl who has no father or to exploit a woman who has no husband. But take off the cultural blinders for a minute and you can see the grave evil of divorce by which the natural protection is ripped away from women and children. You know, 400 years ago, our lady a good success warned about iniquitous laws that would attack the sacrament of matrimony. And I would say that no fault divorce is a prime example. Um, number three, sexual license, in particular the sin of sodomy. And here's another case in point for cultural conditioning and it's because of the contraceptive mentality you know it is simply more difficult for many people today to see just how contrary to nature homosexual activity really is if sex is only about recreation and not about procreation then anything and everything becomes acceptable as long as, as long as you're enjoying yourselves and not hurting anybody, what does it matter? Unfortunately, it does matter. And there are terrible, just natural consequences, much less uh, this, the supernatural ones. And the final sin that cries to heaven for vengeance is the willful killing of the innocent. And, and the most innocent victims of this abominable sin are the unborn. And to think, to think in a single lifetime, my own lifetime, that abortion should go from an uh, literally an unspeakable crime. And when I was born in 1959, you couldn't even say the word abortion on radio or TV. And it has gone from that to somehow being considered a natural right. That just shows you how, how far and how fast we have fallen. And if these sins, which are as common in our society today as they were in the pagan Rome of Jesus's day and St. Paul's day. If those sins continue to cry to heaven for vengeance, and I see no reason why they would not, is it so hard to believe that God might hear that cry? So what to do? Well, the answer is that we must also cry to heaven through prayer. You know, I used to wonder why it is that in virtually every approved apparition of Our Lady, she tells Specifically to pray the Rosary. Why not go to daily Mass or weekly confession? Why the Rosary? Well, in the last few years, really, and especially the last you know ten weeks, I've gotten my answer. It's because, like Mary herself, the Rosary is always here for us. You don't have to get special permission from the bishop. You don't have to convince any committees. You don't have to get special uh, uh, you know reserve the hall or raise money. Just pick up the beads and pray. And even if they close the churches, like they did, even if they you know, come into my house and take my breviary away. I can still unite myself to the liturgical prayer of the church when I pray the rosary. And even if they take away my rosary beads, I've still got my 10 fingers. You know, and in the second half of the 20th century, our Lord gave us a wonderful companion to the Holy Rosary, which is especially value when you don't have access to the sacraments, and that's the chaplet of divine mercy. Prayer and personal sanctity, that is the answer. That that is how we follow the teaching of St. Paul, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That is how the chosen people survived in captivity in Babylon for 500 years without access to the temple. And according to St. Hilary of Poitiers, who died back in the fourth century, he said it is a prerogative of the church that she is the vanquisher when she is persecuted, that she captures our intellects when her doctrines are questioned, that she conquers all at the very moment when she is abandoned by all. Mary, under her title, Our Lady of Good Success, promised a restoration of the church in modern times. Precisely, she said, when almost all would seem lost and paralyzed. And she said, you know, when all would seem lost and paralyzed, that will mark the the arrival of my hour when I, in a marvelous way, will dethrone the proud and cursed Satan, trampling him under my feet. There's an obvious reference to Genesis 3.15, where God tells the devil, she shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. This, I think, is the the triumph of Mary's immaculate heart, promised to the children of Fatima. And it consists in the restoration of the church. And who knew how much it was going to be, need to be restored? Mary crushes the the servant's head by giving birth to Christ, Christ by sacrifice on the cross and the church by making the graces one on the cross present to us through the sacraments and that's happening every day you know and the, the key to crushing the serpent's head today lies in the church because the church is the body of christ and that's you and me so we turn to mary and we remember that no matter what happens no matter what persecution from without no matter what what weakness from within, we have Christ's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so through the powerful intercession of Mary, we await the end of the coronavirus like we await the promised restoration of the church, like we await the the coming of the Lord, not with fear or despair, but in joyful hope. And that, my friend, is no nonsense. All right, what a great pleasure, what an honor to be with you as always. Going to be back tomorrow with Father Chris Alar for the uh, inaugural episode of Understanding Divine Mercy tomorrow at 12 o'clock. Be with us right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed by daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.